856. Hello, church family. It's good to see you tonight, and we're glad that you're here. Um, as Monty, Brother Monty announced, we're going to continue our study in the book of James tonight, and we're going to be studying James chapter 4, verse 13 through James 5, 6. Now, this may seem a little bit strange that we're crossing some chapter barriers. Uh, however, we need to recognize that these letters, when they were written, were not written in chapters and verses. They were just written as one long letter. And sometimes the context passes over some of these transitions between chapters, and that's certainly what we're going to see with James chapter 4 and James chapter 5, like we saw with James 3 and 4 as well. Uh, I've entitled our lesson tonight, What is Your Life? Because that seems to be the, the loudest statement in these verses that we're going to read is a question that James has just about life and what our life is and what defines our life and what does our life consist of. Uh, and so we're going to read these verses just to begin. There's 11 verses uh, that we're going to be examining tonight. We're going to obviously go some different places and, and look at ideas that uh, coincide with this. But we're going to just start by reading these verses together so we can pick up the context of the reading and get the feel of, of the thoughts that James presents for us. So James chapter 4, verses 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. These are very familiar verses to us, aren't they? Very familiar verses. We, we talk about these verses a lot. Now, there's a greater context to these verses than just this statement about the brevity of life. The brevity of life is obviously a large part of the subject here and a great emphasis in the teaching that we need to recognize that life is but a short time. However, James talks a lot in his letter about rich and poor. He talks about it in chapter 1. He mentions that the rich is actually abased or humbled by the gospel of Jesus to his proper place, whereas the poor are exalted by the gospel of Jesus and everybody is honored by Christ. And, you know, the poverty may be a hindrance for the poor, but the rich may be a hindrance for the rich, but the gospel equalizes those things. And then in chapter 2, we saw that Human nature has a tendency to exalt the rich. And he talks about being partial and discriminate toward rich and poor and that we might give great honor to a person of means or wealth when they come into our assembly and, and give them the best seat in the house and maybe make the poor person sit at our feet. So it's, it shouldn't be a surprise that James is going to bring up things concerning riches again. And really, when you look at this, part of uh, the, the focus of this teaching has to do with a focus on making money. Now, we're going to come back to that later. <clears throat> but let's pick up the text once again in verse 16 now. After this statement about if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that, he talks about being arrogant. And he says, Now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now. So he uses that phrase again, come now. And he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, 
which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You've lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You've fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the just. He does not resist you. So let's go back for just a moment. I want to notice these first two words that are used not only in James chapter uh, 4 verse 13, but also starts James chapter 5, and that's the words, come now. And we might say, come on, man. Yep, we might say that. Trying to grab somebody's attention, right? And that's what he's doing here. He wants us to listen. Come now. Let's reason together about this. Let's think about this. Come now. And then what does he say? He says, come now, you who say. So he's talking to a specific audience. Now, I don't know if people actually said these words verbatim but this describes a mindset that people often have and here's the mindset let's go to such and such a city and let's stay there a year and let's buy and sell and make a profit what's wrong with that nothing in and of itself nothing in and of itself it's not wrong to plan and prepare or, or to, to set out on a business venture to be successful and make a profit that God's given us the strength to labor and to work with our hands and even to enjoy the fruits of our labor. So James is certainly not saying, hey, listen, that's a bad thing if you plan and prepare. But there's something else at play that he's really got in mind here. Notice he says this in verse 14. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And a vapor doesn't last very long. A vapor rises up and it dissipates in the air. That's our life. It's short. And then he says this. Instead, instead of what? Instead of saying, we're going to go do this and we're going to do that and here's what's going to be the result of that, what you ought to say is if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. See, it's not about planning and preparation. It's about being arrogant. And that's why he says, you rejoice in your arrogance or you boast in your arrogance because the problem is one of these says we will and the other one says if the Lord wills. That's the greatest part of this teaching. We may think we will will, and we're in control of our life, and we decide where we go and how long we live and what we do while we, when we get there and how much money we make. But there's a lot of things about life that are simply out of our control. We can't do anything about it. And here's the truth of the matter. If we look at life in such a way that our ambition is a worldly ambition and we think we are in control of our life, we are arrogant. I didn't say that. James said that. He said, you are arrogant. Because if God doesn't will, you won't live another heartbeat. And that's the truth. And so what we ought to, you ever hear somebody say that? Hey, I'll see you tomorrow. Lord willing. Where do they get that? Right here. That's where they got that. You know why? Because if God doesn't will, I won't see you tomorrow. I won't see you tomorrow. And that's the, what James is teaching here. We have to understand that everything is subject to the will of God, and to ignore that is arrogance. You know, we actually see this in the teachings of Jesus. You might remember when we started this book, uh, I noted that Martin Luther thought that James was, was a heretic, that he was really just some Jew that was very zealous and didn't like what was going on, was teaching against faith and those kind of things. Do you know what James teaches here lines up and actually is built upon the teachings of Jesus? This same principle. We actually see this in a parable that Jesus gave. He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. What was James's question? What is your life? 
Is your life about you and your ambitions and you going out to seek money for yourself and going somewhere and spending a certain time? No, it's not life. That's not life. Jesus said that's not life. Life is not the abundance of the things that you possess. That's not what life is about. And then he talks about this man, this farmer. Now, is farming sinful? No. In fact, the first man that ever walked the earth was a farmer. Adam was a farmer. That was his lot in life. Now, we might think his farming was a little different than ours, and certainly it was, but that was his job to dress to keep the... Jesus is not upset this guy's a farmer. But you have this man, and he's rich. Well, is, is that what, why, is, why he's wrong? Is it because he's rich? No, it's not because he's rich. But I want you to notice that he's already rich. You ever notice? I missed that detail in this parable for some reason. Before he has the bumper crop, we know what's coming, right? Before he has the bumper crop and wants to pull down the barns and build greater, he's already rich. And that ought to tell us something about why this was wrong for this man to behave this way. So this rich man, it says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So first of all, this guy is already rich. He has enough to live and to thrive and probably more than enough if he's rich. And what does he say? I will, I will, I will, I will. Well, that's exactly what James was just talking about in James 4. Having enough arrogance to say, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. I will, I will, I will. Is it wrong to build bigger barns? No. Not wrong to build bigger barns. But you know, if those bigger barns are meant to store things for you to hold on to and possess and hold back from the rest of humanity, then it's wrong to build bigger barns. This man already had enough. He was rich. But rather than look out and say, you know, I'm rich. God has blessed me greatly. This crop has blessed me greatly. I'm going to help people with this. In fact, I'm going to, I don't have room to store this, so I'm just going to tell everybody I've got this surplus, and they can come and they can be blessed by that. That's not where this man's at. This man is greedy. You say, well, that's presumptuous. Well, I don't believe it's presumptuous. Notice what Jesus says. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. He said, I will, I will, I will. And God said, no, I will. And here's what I will. Tonight, you will die. And then what's going to happen? What's going to happen to that giant crop, that storage of the things, the abundance of things that you possess, what happens to it? I'll tell you what happens to it. It becomes someone else's. That's life. That's why life does not consist of the abundance of the things we possess. Because he who dies with the most toys just dies. He takes no toys with him. He doesn't possess anything. Everything we obtain in this life that is material, it's gone in a moment, in the blink of an eye. Because life is a vapor. And here's why I say this man was greedy. Because Jesus said he was greedy. So is he who lays up treasure for himself. And is not rich toward God. How does someone be rich toward God? We'll come back to that thought. Come now, he says. You rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Most people don't look at riches that way, do we? We think riches are a blessing. Abundance is a blessing. But you know, I've seen time and time again people who become rich and it makes them far more miserable than they ever would have been without it far more miserable 
And he says the same thing that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount about riches and, and that they're corruptible and that garments are moth-eaten. And what's this have to do with? Don't lay up treasures for yourself. What was wrong with the rich here? Maybe they trusted in their riches. They didn't use those riches for the glory of God. Not only that, they oppressed the poor. He talks about that in the next verse. They oppressed the poor. Those that were their servants, their laborers, their employees, they oppressed them. And he said, you've heaped up treasure in the last days. The wrong kind of treasure. The treasure that will corrode, that will be burned. How is one rich toward God? Well, it's kind of interesting and a little bit ironic. And if you're used to reading the Proverbs, you know there's a great deal of irony. And really, when you think about the irony, it's human thought sometimes is counterintuitive to the wisdom of God. How does one get rich? Like this. I think of Hungry Hungry Hippo. You just gather and gather and gather and take and store and gather and take. and That's how you become rich, right? Not according to God. Listen to Proverbs eleven twenty four. 24. There is one who scatters yet increases more. Wait, what? That's right. You take what you possess and you throw it out and you get more. Well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> How do you give away what you have and get richer? He says there's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. So you got two people here. you got somebody that gathers and gathers and hoards and possesses. And he said he comes to poverty. But the person who lets go of their possessions and their goods and they cast it out there, they become richer and richer. He says the generous soul shall be made rich. It's not the one who hoards and possesses for himself that becomes rich. It's the one that's generous. And he who waters will also be watered himself. Now I love this last phrase. He who waters will also be watered himself. And I meant to catch you, Nathan, before services because I wanted him to, to lead a song out of our songbook. Because there's a great song in our songbook and him, him and Bill are probably the only two in here that can lead it unless somebody else knows it. But it's called There is a Sea. And that song is about the two seas that the Jordan River connects. And up here on the north edge of the Jordan River is the Sea of Galilee. And this is the sea that Jesus was often on with his disciples. It's the sea that James and John and Peter and Andrew made their living on as fishermen because this was a sea of abundance, a sea of life. It was full of fish. And you know what happened was there was water that flowed into this sea and that water that, that, it, that it received, it also gave. Just like the proverb says. It received life. And it gave life, and because of that, it was full of life. But you know, there's another sea down at the south end of the Jordan River, and it's known as the Dead Sea. You know what it does? It receives, and it receives, and it takes, and it takes, but it gives nothing back. And just as the song says, that sea is waste and dead. And that's life. That's the truth. When people's ambition is to hold and to hoard and not to share and be generous, they're the Dead Sea. They take and they take and they take, but there's no life there. It doesn't bless anyone else. And God expects his people to be a conduit for the blessings that he gives us, a channel, if you will, for those blessings. And when we give freely, God blesses us greatly. You want to be rich toward God? Use what God gives you for his purpose, and you'll be rich. But this man that we read about and the people that James is warning about here in James 4 and 5, they were takers. They were takers. Back to James chapter 4 and this time verse 1. This is uh, what was studied last week, I suppose. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Well, that's a loaded question, right? 
I mean, there's a lot of reasons people could fight, but James, he points it down, he narrows it down to one thing, and he says, is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? This word pleasures is very interesting. In fact, the word pleasures here and the word pleasures here are the same word in the Greek, and is the word hedone, which is where we get our term hedonist or hedonism. And what is that? That's when somebody's life ambition is the pursuit of physical pleasure. It is the theory that happiness can be found in maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. It's all about self-indulgence. It's the same word Jesus used in Luke chapter 8 when he gave us the parable of the sower. And he says those that are choked by riches and cares and pleasures. And what's he saying? Why do you fight? Why do you fight with other people? Why do you have strife? And then he answers the question. <laughs> with the question, is the source not your pleasures that wage one your body part? And then he says this, you lust and you do not have. You know what the word lust is there? It's not like our word lust that, that we read about when we talk about lusting after uh, something sinful necessarily, but it means to set your heart on something. He says, you set your heart on something, but you don't obtain it. You don't have it. He said, so what do you do? Well, you kill someone and take it. He said, well, that's, that's kind of a leap, is it? Why did Cain kill Abel? Envy. He saw something he wanted, he took it. You say, well, what did he take? Well, he didn't really get what he wanted, but he wanted God's, he wanted God's uh, honor. God was pleased with Abel. He was displeased with Cain. He envied that. He wanted it. He took it. So what did he do? He killed the competition. And that's, that's kind of the pursuit of riches, isn't it? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, we're told. You've got to look out for number one. You've got to run over the competition. Be a winner. I'll tell you, competition is rooted in envy. That's what it is. It's rooted in envy. And what's it cause? It causes strife and fighting. And he says, so you lust, you want something, and you don't have it. So what do you do? You, you take out the competition. He said, you're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it, spend what you request on your pleasures. What's he saying? You got the wrong focus. That's what he's saying. You got the wrong focus. Life is not about what we have. It's not about what we have. And the moment we set our mind on what we possess and what we hold and what we store up for ourselves, we lose reality. Listen to what he says. You ask of God, but you don't get it. And why don't you get it? Because your heart's not right. you got the wrong motive. You want it so you can take it and hold it and waste it on your own indulgence and pleasures. You ever prayed that way? I have. I have. I've prayed for selfish things. Have you? I have. I had somebody come to me one day and he said, pray that we get this done. And I'll tell you what they wanted to get done was this big extravagant house. And I thought, well, I don't want to pray for that. He said, I'm going to use that for God's glory. We prayed about it. They didn't do it. They got the house. They didn't do it. You know, sometimes we get upset with God because he doesn't bless us with riches. And here's the truth. Just like we know what's best for our kids, the Father knows what's best for his kids. And some of us don't need riches. Because I'll tell you why. We won't have riches. They'll have us. And what's better? To be poor and God have our heart or to be rich 
Well, let's listen to what Paul told Timothy. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The world has given us this equivalent. Riches equals happiness. Paul said, here's what happens when you set your mind on riches. Listen, listen to the language. We're going to just go through it one by one. A snare. What is a snare? You ever seen a bear trap? Those things are pretty nasty, right? You, you want to get trapped by something like that? He said, riches will do that. If that's your desire, you'll fall into a snare, a trap. He says, in fact, you'll fall into many foolish and harmful desires or lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. This is the result of setting our mind on riches and, and reaching after it and pursuing after it. The love of money, he says, is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Why is it that we know that this is true? We read these verses, we see the end result, but we ignore it anyway. Why do we do that? I'll tell you what my theory is, and you may not agree, and that's okay, but this is my theory based on the Scripture, is that we do that because other people are doing that. We do it because other people are doing that. You say, where'd that theory come from? Because that was the history of Israel. Every time Israel looked out at these other nations that were materialistic and prosperous, what did they do? They became like the other nations. Now, do you think that they thought within themselves, let's go worship other gods? No, they just said, man, those people were really, really got it good. So they wanted a different king, one that could really make them prosper and what God tell them. Okay, you can have your king. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to make your life miserable. He's going to take your sons and he's going to turn them into soldiers. He's going to take your daughters and turn them into maidservants. In fact, he's going to take everybody and make them build for him. But you want to be like the world? Okay, you can be like the world. You know what's sad? We don't even see that we're covetous. You know why? Because we've all got riches. We've all got a bunch of stuff. We've all got materialism in our hearts. And it's very hard to see when everybody's in the same boat, right? I'll tell you what, your perspective changes when you see some of your brethren living in straw huts with dirt floors. When you walk into a church building and everybody, including the old people and young people, are sitting on concrete floors and you walk up on a stage, it's made of buffalo dung. You know what these people are? They're happy. They're happy. You say, how can you be happy? I'll tell you why they're happy. Because their mind is not sucked into consumerism and the American dream. Their hope is in Christ. Their joy is in Christ. They're happy because Jesus came to save their souls. This stuff, it doesn't matter. It ain't about having. It's not about owning. It's about desiring. It's about possessing. So James says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts is in the day of slaughter. That's a pretty strange way to say it. You fattened your hearts. Think of it this way. What is the word of God meant to affect? I can't tell you how many times I've heard or said, you really stepped on my toes. God's word is not meant to impact our feet. It is meant to pierce our heart. And when it's got a big round layer of fat around it, it doesn't do what God wants it to do. We have the opportunity to live in convenience and luxury and self-indulgence. It's very easy 
in the land that we live in to do that. But understand, there is a price. There's a price. Because the more stuff you add, the more idols you have. The more materialism you have, the more responsibility you have, and the more responsibility you have, the less time you can give to the Lord your God. And pretty soon, the heart becomes calloused. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says this, Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. You say, well, we took a turn, didn't we? What? We were just talking about riches. No, we didn't take a turn. We're coming back to James' solution for not getting caught up in this nonsense. What was the solution? What is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. If that's really true, if this is our end, if we're all going to meet God one day in judgment, how vain, how futile is it for us to spend the little time that we have pursuing after pleasure and money? If we really believe our life is a vapor, we will not live that way. And he said, for that reason, it's better to go to a funeral than a birthday party. And you know what? I read those words and I go, no, you're wrong, sir. I would much rather celebrate another year of life. He didn't say it's happy. He said it's better. And why is it better? Because for a by sad countenance, the heart is made better. See, sometimes the heart is fat. It's fat. Sometimes the heart is calloused. Sometimes the heart is sick. When we look into the face of our loved one, it changes our perspective, doesn't it? He says, the heart of the wise is here. It's in the house of mourning. No, he's not saying be depressed. No, he's not saying be dark. No, he's not saying be obsessed about death. He's saying this, recognize that this life is a vapor. It's short. Don't waste your time. You know, in Genesis chapter 6, we read about the flood. And you know, sometimes Noah's flood ends up getting so conflated and confused into this children's story about little animals getting on a boat. That happened. Animals got on a boat. But this is a story of God's wrath against man because he decided to ignore God and forgot about his mortality. God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of what? His heart was only evil continually. Now, how do you get to that point where everybody is only thinking about evil all the time? Imagine that you live to be 800 years old. And someone like James says, what is your life? It's even a vapor and you're like, is it though? <laughs> I mean, that guy over there is walking around. Have you met Methuselah? He's 968. He died at 969, by the way. He's 968. And so when I'm 300, I'm just a kid. I got lots of time to live. How seriously would you take life? If everybody lived a long time, you would lose your sense of mortality and probably veer off into moral depravity. But you know, the lingering thought of ju God's judgment being imminent or our life being cut short, that has an effect on us. But these people lost their sense of mortality. And what did Jesus say that they spent their time doing? He says, as in the days of Noah, so will also be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, listen, they were eating and drinking, 
marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know. Didn't know what? Did not know the wrath of God was coming until it was too late. You know what they were doing? Living life. Enjoying life. Buying, selling, getting gain. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what the rich fool said. I will say to my soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, be merry. And what God say? You fool, this night. That's why we live the way we do. If we live in that way, if we're living that way, if we're pursuing after materialism and we're just going after it hard and we're neglecting God, there's a reason for that. Because we sing the song, Jesus is coming soon, but we really don't believe it. <laughs> I mean, who really believes Jesus is coming back tonight? I mean, how many, how many sermons have we heard where somebody says, Jesus is coming soon. What if he comes tonight? And we get to the next day, we go, he didn't come. One of these days, somebody's going to be right. Somebody's going to be right. And he's not going to warn us. There's not going to be a bunch of signs. People are talking about signs in the Middle East right now. That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. He's going to come as a thief in the night. He's going to be here one day. And we better be ready. And I'll tell you, if we're wasting our life spending it in just the indulgences and the pleasures that life has to offer, the comforts and the luxury, all we're doing is fattening our hearts as in the day of slaughter. And I hope we're not caught unaware just like these people were. Revelations chapter 3 and verse 14, we read this letter that was written to the church at Laodicea. And it says, To the angel of the church, or the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. How would you like to get a letter that was from Jesus? Sounds great, right? I don't want this letter. I'd love to get a letter from the Lord. We've got one. It's called the Bible. But, you know, I have a personalized letter sent to your congregation from the Lord. Probably not what they expected. He says, I know your works. That ought to grab their attention right there. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. He said, I, I, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So I've been told that there's a spring, a natural spring that was used back in the days in this area around Laodicea that was a natural spring and as it was coming down it was very hot and you could take it and use it. As it got down closer to the bottom it got lukewarm and it got so much salt in it when it became lukewarm that if you drank it it would make you vomit. So you had to either cool it down or get it while it was hot. What, what does that help us with? He's using an analogy that they're familiar with. And what's he say? You're lukewarm. We may have all kinds of ideas about what that means, but let's let the Bible define itself. What did Jesus mean when he told the church at Laodicea, you're not cold, you're not hot, you're lukewarm? We say, well, they're not dedicated, they're not committed. Possibly so. But let's read what Jesus did say to them. Because you say they made a self-assessment about their state in life, here's what they said. I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. What is your life? Here's what Laodicea said. We are rich, we are wealthy, we don't need anything. That was their self-assessment. Here's the assessment of the Lord who knows the hearts of men. You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They were wrong. 
I'll tell you, way too many people feel like because they're succeeding in life that that means God's happy with them. He wasn't happy with them. They were successful. They had material wealth. But don't ever think that's a barometer for whether or not God is pleased with us, whether or not we're being blessed in an earthly way. Could be that Satan is using that as a tool to keep us distracted from what really matters. Lots of people who are ungodly are very rich. And it's not a good way to judge whether or not we're right with God. They thought they saw. He said, you don't see. You're blind. In fact, you're fully exposed. You're naked. You know what comes along with nakedness, don't you? Shame. I counsel you, he says in verse 18, to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Do you think Jesus actually had physical gold he wanted them to buy? No, it's obviously symbolic, isn't it? The true riches. I want to, you to invest in the true riches. And what are those riches? What riches did Jesus tell us about that were different from the treasures on earth? Treasures in heaven. To invest in the kingdom of God and to seek it first. And then he says, all the material things that you need will be added to you. And when we don't do that, it's a lack of trust. And these people had this problem. And he says, and I also want you to buy white garments so that you may be clothed. You know, it's often associated with being rich, of having the finest clothing. But he said, you're naked and you need a covering. So buy the white garment that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Because they didn't see. And here's what he says. As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. We don't often associate rebuke with love, do we? Somebody tells us we're doing something wrong. We get upset. We feel insulted or offended. But Jesus said, I'm telling you this because I love you. And what would be more loving? To let them be poor and miserable and blind and naked and wretched? Or to say, listen, you are caught by a snare and you need to come back and invest in what is good for your soul and turn away from this other so be zealous and repent what's it mean be zealous what's that mean be zealous it means to be on fire to be on fire have a passion go toward a thing with vigor with zeal and turn away what is your life james says you don't know what's on the morrow, but what you should say is if the Lord wills, she will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now verse 17, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. How many times have we read that verse? Lots, right? How many times have we read it in context? We read it a lot. We say, hey, if you know to do good and you don't do that, well, that's sin. Well, that's absolutely what he says. But notice the word here therefore therefore what is the subject don't boast in your arrogance so think of it this way because your life is a vapor because you are not in control of your days because your life is in God's hands do good now while you have time because if you're looking out and boasting in your arrogance thinking uh, no God I know I need to do that but hold on a sec that's sin that's sin do good while you have the opportunity to do good. Because you don't know if you have tomorrow to do good. Don't put off what God has called you to do today thinking you can do it tomorrow. 
we need to do the will of God while the breath of life is within us. And to not do good is sin. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. I'll tell you what, you can turn on the radio and you can hear lots and lots and lots of foolish songs, the songs of fools. You know, the one that is applicable to me, and probably a lot of y'all don't like country music, so this will be lost on you, but some of you will get it. I think it was Joe Diffie. Is that right, Jason? Joe Diffie that sang, Prop Me Up Beside the Jukebox When I Die. You ever heard that song? You remember the next line? Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. Was that our attitude? We want to go to heaven, but why would we want to go today? I mean, look at what we've got. Look at what we've obtained. Look at the comfort we live in. I've got ambitions in this world, Lord. I don't want to go now. You know what we do? We hear the song of fools, but we wrote it. We wrote it. And we'd rather continue to parrot and echo the same song over and over than to listen to the rebuke of the wise. And what is the rebuke of the wise? It's the words of Paul. This is the rebuke of the wise. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. He said, all things are exposed. All things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. And whatever makes manifest is light. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about exposing evil deeds. Being in the light, being fully exposed, having your life on display. And he says, therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You know what he means, awake you that sleep? He means open up your eyes. Just like Jesus told Laodicea, I want you to get from me eye salve and put it on your eyes so you won't be blind anymore. Paul said, open your eyes. Walk circumspectly. Walk with awareness. Walk with vigilance. Know what's around you. Open your eyes and walk that way. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. What's that mean? It means to buy up the time. To use your time that you have wisely. Why? Because the days are evil. What days are evil? Is he, is he trying to say certain days are wicked? No. The days are full of evil. We think we're in control of life. And all of a sudden something happens. And all of a sudden we recognize we're not in control of life, are we? We get out on the highway. We're driving down the road. And some drunken fool veers across in oncoming traffic and hits us head on. You know what? That's not in our control, is it? But that's the days. The days are evil. The days are full of trouble. Life could stop at any moment. So he says, don't be a fool. Be wise. Now listen. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'll tell you what I get out of James 4, 13 through James 5, 6. Every day when we wake up, our first thought should be, what is the will of the Lord for me today? And then walk in it. Because anything else is foolish. Anything else is foolish. I know we've got responsibilities. We've got responsibilities. But let's not get sucked into the world. Every day, our purpose is to fulfill and walk in the will of the Lord and recognize that we are not in control of our life. And God is. We'll leave you with one last passage tonight from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Why would we live this way? Because it's worth it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to verse 4. 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know what he's talking about? Make an investment in the right place. Invest in God because God has an inheritance that the stock market doesn't touch, that rust doesn't corrupt, that moth does not eat. It's kept by the power of God. It's sure, it's steadfast. And if you work toward that and you pursue after that, you will obtain it. 100% of the time. It's 100% guaranteed investment. And by the way, it's not attached to the vapor. It's eternal. It's worth it. The disciples said, Lord, we left all, and we followed you. And you know what Peter was saying? What are we going to get for doing that? What are we going to get? And Jesus said, there's no man that hath left house and wives and children and lands for my sake who will not receive in this life all those things with persecutions and eternal life. He said, why, why do you throw in persecutions? Because Jesus wasn't about painting the cloudy picture of everything is going to be wonderful. He said, yes, you're going to be blessed. You're also going to suffer a little bit. But you get eternal life. What's in it for you, Peter? Everything. It's the only thing that's worth investing in. Because here's the reality. What does a man profit? Let's say we make that decision. I'm going to go and sell and buy and sell and get gain. I'm going to make a profit. Let's say you do that. And your profit is the whole world. What does a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Hell. That's what he profits. Hell. This is a wake-up call from James. And the wisdom of God says live with your eye on eternity. And it will change. It will change all of us. We'll decide what to do in the reality of the eternal God of heaven. But we've got to wake up. Friends, tonight the lesson is yours. If you need, the, if you need to respond at the invitation of Christ at this time to become a child of God and to receive that eternal life and to become an heir of eternity with him, we want to encourage you to do that. If you're here tonight and you're having some trouble in your life with sin, maybe with materialism or something else, we're not to be your judge, but we do request that you bring that need before Jesus. Because again, we don't know how much time we have. You know, if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, you know what I'd do? I'd change some things. <laughs> I would. I'd change some things. My perspective would be different. I think all of them would. One of these days will be the last day we have on earth. Don't wait. Don't put that off. If you need to make a change, come to the Lord tonight. Have a seat on the front. Let us help you as we stand and we sing.